your week has been like. I don't know if it's been a hard week, a happy week, a joyful week. Maybe you're a little discouraged. Maybe you're overwhelmed. Maybe you're looking forward and just wondering, how am I even going to make it to next weekend, much less tomorrow? But I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here to be able to worship with God's people, to be able to give and to be able to sing and be able to open up God's Word. If you're newer to our fellowship, we open up God's Word at this time. And we just go through some verses bit by bit and see what God has for each one of us today. Words that will encourage, words that will convict, words that will overwhelm you. But words we trust that will just be something that God will be able to use in your life. Just like he used in the many hundreds and thousands of people who distributed those Gideon Bibles and literatures. You know, Peter writes to a group of kingdom patriots near the end of his life. Peter calls them exiles or temporary residents or foreigners or sojourners. Life is hard for those who have chosen to represent the king. And things were only going to get worse. Peter focuses on salvation. A rescue that is so robust that has three aspects or facets. There's justification that happens right when you come to faith. Where your debt for your sin has been paid for because of your faith in Christ. There's sanctification which gives you the authority and the power over sin so that sin doesn't have to rule in your life right now, presently. And as you walk with God, he chips away those things that don't reflect him very well or don't belong in our lives. And then there's glorification, as we've just kind of sung about home. Someday for every believer who shuts their eyes here on this planet. That will begin their eternity. There won't be any sin. There won't be any tears. And we'll have an opportunity to spend with God forever and ever. We've noticed in our short study of Peter so far that Peter likes to share truth and then helps us understand how we can live in light of that truth. Throughout his letter, he rants on God's grace. He cannot get enough of God's grace, and he is overwhelmed by how gracious a God is and how much he loves him. Children of God enjoy his presence and show his goodness to others. I've asked Alicia to read our scripture today, so if you can turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 13. For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority, whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the King. Let's pray. Father, would you open up our eyes today? 
At first reading, Lord, I, I think these are really hard words. And I'm not so sure that uh, we're going to all line up and listen to them. But God, I, I believe that there's a good number of people that desire to listen to you in every area of their lives. And so as we look at this text, we pray that you would help us understand and give us the courage to, to listen and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pause just for a second. Don't Peter's words actually trouble you? If you just read them, not understanding any kind of context, they must bother you. As hard as it was to hear Peter's words today, I think his words actually shocked the original hearers. Life was so radically different for God followers in the Roman Empire during the first century. It cost believers comfort and jobs and freedom and even their lives. Peter warned us in the very first chapter, right in the very first few words of his letter, back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And he says, hey, I don't want you to be shocked when you enter hard times, when you suffer. This will refine you. This will cause you to depend on me just a little bit more. And those are great words when our suffering is, well, maybe we miss a meal. Or our suffering is maybe, and you put it in. But when it costs you your life, when loved ones are being imprisoned, it doesn't seem to be that attractive at this moment. Let me try to describe to you the circumstances that the first century believers endured. You know, the Roman Empire was openly sinful and decadent. It was a society infamous for evil, homosexuality, infanticide, government corruption, abuse of women, immorality, and violence. In Rome, Christians were endured, mostly because they were counterculture. The Romans did not like their idea of worship of one God. The Romans had many gods. The Romans enjoyed the freedom of worshiping who they wanted to, when they wanted to worship. Rome didn't like their message of God's grace. They liked their gods, well, in a box. They liked to go to their gods certain times, but they didn't want their god to be authoritative and to grace the subjects. Rome didn't like their message of love for each other, for the marginalized, for the slave, for the woman, for children, for those of other races. This inclusive message bothered the Romans a whole lot. Nero at this time was 17 years old when he began his reign as emperor in A.D. 54. We think First Peter was probably written around A.D. 62. And Nero ruled until A.D. 68. 
He had good intentions early in his career, but he ended up as a selfish, compulsive, and extremely corrupt leader. Nero saw a chance to make Christians a scapegoat after Rome's great fire in 64 AD. He literally honored people who would rat on fellow Christians. If, you, if he found anyone that would expose Christians, he would lift them up. The redeemed at this time under Nero's rule were crucified. The chosen were forced to wear animal skins and then pushed into public arenas in order to be slaughtered for entertainment or sport. The rescued were encased in wax and burned at the stake or while they were crucified. It makes things look a little different for us. Following Jesus is hard for us at times. But I'm really sure it has never come to a place where we had to choose life or death. Where we had to say goodbye to a loved one because they follow the cross. Now what I'd like you to do again is read these words in this context. Because no matter how bad the context is right here, or hard, or challenging, Read these words just privately to yourself, remembering that Nero is in charge. Do that now. No wonder Peter focused so much on God and on our temporary journey while we're on this planet. If life was so ruthless, so hard, so difficult, that he wanted to encourage his people to remain faithful, but remind them again, this was just a temporary gig. No matter how long God allows you to live, it's still going to be a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Peter gives us in this text three critical exhortations to his friends, the tattered and maligned followers of Jesus. He says this, for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, for your master's sake, out of respect for your king. Because Jesus is your king, I'm going to ask you to do three things, Peter says. I'm going to ask you to fear and love and respect. Now, if you look at the text, those are all mixed in there, but I do think there's a progression here. I think, first of all, Peter really is asking his people 
the recipients of this letter, to fear God first. So we're going to look at fear God. He's asking them to live in awe of God. Now this is really hard because probably there's not one person on this planet that you would literally be in awe of. Now, some of you would respect certain political figures, some of you maybe some certain leaders that you know, but very few of us would ever understand what it is to come into the presence of a king, a sovereign. Maybe the president would be the closest thing, but for you to have a private audience or come into some great government official or powerful person, I'm not so sure the word awe would come to mind. But that's really what fearing God is. Is that you recognize who God is. You almost lose your words. Because you're in the presence of creator God. God who spoke and the world began. The God who touched a blind man. And he received his sight. And he was blind from birth. A man, again, that, that as we look at what he did on this planet, as we understand all of what God did all the way through eternity, you fear because you're in awe. You also fear because you have great respect. God has never broken his word. God deserves our respect. God is faithful. We embrace the sovereign. And we enjoy the relationship. You know, very few of us have ever had a president as a dad. We don't know how it would be to have a dad as the most powerful person probably on the planet today. And everybody has their protocol and everybody has their security and everyone knows exactly how you're supposed to treat this man. But it's so interesting as you saw over the years, President's family as they were able to enjoy that relationship and jump into the lap of the president. Not one of us would do that. We would never think of that. But fearing God is all of this. Basking in a relationship, understanding that that God is almighty, that God is so big, that God is so powerful, that what God says he always does. We're reminded back in chapter 1, verse 17, live in reverent fear. But today, fear seems to be a sign of weakness, especially among high school students. They would wear shirts like no fear, or sweatshirts. And they would flaunt this, because basically fear showed weakness. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid of this. I'm not af- and, and you would hear that. It happens a little more in the playground with younger kids. But really, as you look at life, a real man, a real woman will be able to stand up and say, I have no fear. Well, realistically, people that have no fear 
are kind of foolish. We have to fear. Fear keeps us sharp. Fear allows us to live our lives well. And to fear God is critical. In the kingdom culture, fear of God is critical. If you see God clearly, you fear him. His power, his authority, his goodness. All of those things light up a room. Fearing God puts life in perspective. All the way through the scriptures, we are told, fear God. Solomon himself, the wisest man on the planet, God allowed him to to think differently than anybody else. He says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the last verse, after he goes through a litany of things that didn't satisfy him. It was money. It was power. It was success. It was relationships. And he would end up at the end of every one of that those passages and say, you know what? Life isn't what it should be. It's meaningless, in fact. At the very end, he just says this. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. Eventually, in any relationship, your fear of that person or respect of that person changes And you begin to fear or respect them out of love. Oftentimes I think a little child will fear his father or his mother. But they fear because of perhaps the punishment or because of the grounding or whatever. Well, as relationships develop, I don't fear or respect my wife because I'm going to get a spanking. I love her with all my heart. She has proved to me honest and a woman of integrity. And I'm going to listen and respond. Not because of a consequence, but because she has earned that. And that's how it is with God. As we spend time with God, we recognize who God is and we fear and we respect God. We listen to God. We obey God. Fearing God means trusting Him in all circumstances, no matter how difficult they are. And this is something I think Peter was trying to hammer home. But there's a plethora of verses, and I'm going to put some on the screen. Solomon also wrote in Proverbs 3, 5, 6, and 7, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you what path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Trust in God. Put your faith in God. He is worthy to be trusted. And even near the end, hey, fear. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord always. For the Lord God is the eternal rock. And in Nahum, chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. No matter what the circumstance, what the situation you're in, no matter what God is asking you to walk through, He says, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me because I'm the sovereign God. I want you to trust me because 
I've never let you down. I want you to trust me because I know what the future holds. I want you to trust me because no matter what happens here, I've got your back. So trust me. You may not understand. You may be blind. You may be discouraged. But I want you to trust me. Romans 8.28, what an amazing promise. And we know that God causes, the sovereign God, causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for him. Well, Rick, I just got laid off. Whoa, that hurts. I get that. I do. But no matter what happens in our life, God is above that and God is bigger than that. And God uses every situation and he will bring it about so that he will receive glory and you will grow. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul's in prison. He writes this. That's why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard what I've trusted to him until the day of his return. My faith is in God. I'm in prison right now. I've been listening to God. I've been doing what God wants. And I'm spending time in prison. I think he had a beef. But he didn't see it that way. He says, I'm, I'm going to trust my sovereign God. I know that he's going to take my faith. I know he's going to honor this. And I am going to, well, see what God wants me to do right here in the dungeon. Peter starts off and it says, fear God. Second thing he says in our text is, love God's family Deeply. You see, I think love for others comes from fearing God. Because the definition of love is literally giving up your life. It's serving others. And I'm not so sure any of us really enjoy being less selfish. We love focusing on ourselves. But as you spend time with God, you understand who God is. You have God's perspective and God's priorities and God's purpose. Peter's already focused on loving others a little bit in chapter 1, verse 22. So his command is pretty firm right here. He's saying, I want you to love those in the church, your brothers and sisters, deeply. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, the apostle John writes this. He says, now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. A little bit later in John 15, again, this is Jesus' last speech to the disciples right before he goes to the garden and then gets crucified. He says, this is my commandment. This is what I want you to hear. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There is no greater love than to lie down or lay down one's life for your friends. Within the next moment, Jesus is modeling what he just said. 
He said, my way to love others is to put yourself second or third or fourth. Now, parents learn this early. I mean, sometimes you fail at it. I get it. But sometimes loving people like this is hard. You mean, really, I am going to put others before myself? I'm going to die to my needs. I'm going to die to what's important to me so that I might serve someone else. You know, I think right here, Peter is even giving a little bit higher obligation to believers. It feels like me a priority. But if you look in all the scriptures, there's not a whole lot of focus that says, hey, I want you just to love Christian brothers and sisters. There's really only two spots in all the Bible where where there's a little more of a priority. This is one of them. There's another one in Galatians when Paul writes this. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially those who are in the family of faith. God says this. I want you to love. I want you to give up yourself. I know it doesn't seem to make sense. But people are literally going to know that you are a God follower by the way you treat others selflessly. It's amazing. Now, we get to the hard part. I think fearing God is a challenge. There's no doubt. And, And if we don't spend time with God, it's hard. I think living a life less selfish is extremely difficult at times. But I'll be honest, there's some really neat people, good people right here in this church, and it's not hard sometimes to serve them. really isn't. But then Peter says, respect. Respect. The command, not a suggestion, to respect is used three times in five verses. If you've been reading God's Word for any length of time, you know any time something is said once, it's really important. If God repeats it twice, whoa, pay attention. All right? That's for some of us slower ones. But when God says it three times in five verses, I think if you understand the context now that these Christians were living in, you understand why Peter had to say this three times. I don't think we live in the same circumstances, but I bet we're going to struggle in the same way. Respect for others absolutely flows from respect of fearing God. Because I think fear of God encourages believers to submit to all earthly authorities. Because they can trust God, their sovereign God, to take care of the details. Respect in this situation, all the way through these verses, means to be submissive to an authority. And this usually implies obedience to the authority. Literally, Peter is not just saying, hey, I want you to respect your sister. She is a 
person who's been made in God's image, and she is just an unbelievably wonderful girl. Now, there's other places in the scriptures that talk about that. But Peter right here is using a word that is literally, literally saying, anyone who is of authority in your life, you need to listen and respect and obey them. So he starts off, respect all human authorities. Whoa. Isn't this a great one for, like, parents? You know, I mean, your kid's kind of screwing up, you know, and you pull out, whip out the Bible, or maybe you memorize it because you got this one down. Hey, the Bible says respect all human authorities, and I am that authority. And your son and daughter just whips to it. Oh, sovereign father. (laughs) Great mother. Of course I will listen to every word that you say. Just point it out. Oh, yeah. We're dreaming just a little bit here. But it's really easy to point to our kids, right? You know, they they ought to. Or you need to listen to your teachers. Or you need to listen to your coaches. Or you... (laughs) Come on, they're your authority and God's given them to you. And let's hop to it. Oh, boy. Peter's talking to all of us. He's saying respect, listen, submit to all authority, whether it be kings or officials. And we're going to go back to this again at the very end of our text. That is a reminder again, more than a reminder. But believers actually obey earthly authority in order to honor God's sovereign authority. You know, in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes this, just a little bit earlier, right in the beginning of Nero's reign, he says, everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God. And these and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against God who has instituted it. And they will be punished. Robert Culver wrote a book called The Biblical View of Civil Government. It's a Moody Press book. And on page 47, he says this. God alone has sovereign rights. Democratic theory is no less unscriptural than divine right monarchy. By whatever means men come to positions of rulership, by dynastic descent, aristocratic family connection, plucratic material resources, or by democratic election, there is no power but of God. Furthermore, civil government is an instrument, not an end. Men are proximate ends, but only God is the ultimate end. The state owns neither its citizens nor their properties, minds, bodies, or children. All of these belong to the Creator God who has never given the state the rights of eminent domain. You know, if we're sharp, though, and I think some of you, your mind is racing, 
But there are occasions recorded in the scriptures when God's people have disobeyed human government and seem to have been approved by God to do this. This is where I think it gets dicey. The biblical examples of civil disobedience involve the choice between obeying God's laws and man's laws. Let me give you a quick example. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, the Egyptian midwives, all right, were told, I want you to kill all the baby boys. And the scriptures say this, that the midwives feared God. So they did not obey. And a little bit later in Exodus chapter 1, the scripture says this, because the midwives listened to God or feared God more than men, God blessed those midwives and actually gave them children of their own. So, whoa. Okay, well, well what does that mean? Here, here's some other ones, you know, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? That's a story every one of you have heard and told. But what was the choice? I want you to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar, the god Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, no. My authority is God, and I'm not going to bow down literally, even if it cost me the furnace. And it did. But it was a choice between man's laws and God's laws. You can go through some other. In the beginning of of Acts, the Sanhedrin was trying to get Peter and the rest of the early church leaders to do certain things, like not preach the gospel. And Peter just asked, hey, am I supposed to obey God or am I supposed to obey you? Respectfully, it's God. And that's what he did. So over time, there have been various violations of ordinances, acts of civil disobedience, insurrections, revolutions, and different subversive attempts to overthrow governments, all in the name of Christianity. Now listen, I may not make fans here, but I think this is what the Bible teaches Scripture nowhere condones such actions. On the contrary, the biblical command is simple. Submit to civil authority regardless of its nature. All forms of government from dictatorships to democracies are filled with evil because they are led by fallen sinners. Still, even though individual leaders may be godless, civil authority is from God. Peter goes on, respect everyone. And again, this is in the context of, hey, people who are in authority. We're focused a little bit on civil authority right there in the beginning. We're going to close up with some very specific scenarios But right now, he just kind of throws the blanket over everything. If there is someone in charge of you, if someone has authority over you, maybe it's a badge, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a father, you name it. But what Peter is saying is that you need to respect, submit to every person. 
who has authority over you. What authorities are we struggling to obey? I, I don't know. But we can sure justify the boss that seems to be a little bit over the top. Are you kidding me? And you know what? Our kids hear it. Our wife hears it. Our co-workers hear it. This is so unreasonable. Why is he asking me to come in a half hour early? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, man. Have you ever met my math teacher? She would be Attila the Hunna. She is crazy. I just can't do all the stuff she wants me to do. And we can put all those things in there. But Peter doesn't say respect because they have all earned it. Have you noticed that? He says, respect your authority. And I would like to shout out a little bit at this moment to our parents. You know, parents, grandparents, families have an unbelievable privilege to disciple their kids, to make disciples, to help them understand God's grace, to model for them how God responds. But there are times whether we feel justified or not, that we can talk about authorities in our lives in a negative way. We are modeling for our kids disrespect depending on circumstances. That's hard. Now kids, I don't want you to go home and at lunch today say, ha, did you hear what Pastor Rick said? <laughs> and we'll go far. Just letting you know. And then Peter ends up, respect the king. He is not letting this one die. And of course, if you understand, Nero is the king, is the Caesar at that moment. You understand. Respect all those in authority, especially the civil, government workers. Respect everyone. That means everyone. And then respect the king. Oh, I, I want you to know that I never felt that my future depended on whatever president that we had or was elected. And I'll be honest, I, I'm not sure of your political alliance or bent. I'm not even sure how, some of, how passionate some of you are. But I know one thing, that we all live through a very unique, unique time here in the United States. Starting back when our presidential run began. Hearing the pluses and the minuses, watching the debates, trying to figure out, and then eventually doing our civic and God duty, placing a vote. I also don't know whether you're really excited about our president. I know again that he just got through giving a very long and detailed speech. 
I'm not sure if you voted for him or didn't. Or maybe you voted for him and wish you didn't. I don't know. But I do know that Donald Trump, oh boy. (laughs) Donald Trump is our president. I can tell you personally as a pastor, I would have never thought this could happen. Never. Do I think he's exceptionally more evil than anyone else? No. It just seemed a little odd to me as this whole thing unveiled. But he's here. He's our president. And we have challenges, believe me, right? But no elected official to me looks like Nero. That makes sense. Peter was asking his brothers and sisters to do a whole lot more than any of us are being asked to do. So I believe the redeemed can respect the authorities in our lives. Because the king says we're supposed to, and we can trust the king. We're going to talk next week on how Jesus actually modeled this while he was on the planet, but we just don't have time this week. So what literally does it look like to fear God, love deeply, and respect everyone, especially the king? I'm going to start with some very practical things. Folks, we cannot do this just by trying. It starts with your relationship. It starts with my relationship with the Almighty. Life flows out of a rich relationship with God. And every day starts with fearing and trusting our sovereign God. Whether we got picked for the A team or the B team. Whether we get to go on travelers. Oh, wait a minute, it just isn't fair. I'm telling you, I know all ten of those boys. I was their coach at one time. My son can hit harder, my son is faster, and my son should have been on it. Well, hoody doody to that. (laughs) I'm glad. But you know what's so cool? Is that if you have a sovereign God, you literally can walk with your son through this unbelievably disappointment. And it's not going to be the first one, and it certainly is not going to be the last one. Say, well, Rick, I have rights. I, I don't, I, actually, I don't know if you have rights. I, I don't know. But I know this, is that if I can trust God, because I know God so well that he's going to take care of a boss who's a little crabby, a coach that's blind, or whatever else comes in your life. Fearing God allows me to love my brothers and sisters. It gives me the courage to give up my lives for them. And fearing God allows me to respect everyone which means submitting to their authority. 
I think one simple way to be able to just even ask God to help each one of us grow in this area is how do we talk about our government officials, our neighbors, and the people in our world? In fact, I believe fearing God will help me respond differently and people will notice. Trusting God actually takes the pressure off of me to fix every situation. Because the truth is, I'm not even smart enough to fix every situation. But my God is. My God is amazing. I believe if I begin praying for people in authority, my heart changes. I guarantee it. I don't know who is in charge of you in what arena. But I know one thing, a simple spending time praying for these people will help you respect them or submit to them. I'm not even sure right now we are going to enter a time of communion. And for many of you know what that is, but communion really is an opportunity for each one of us to remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He shed his blood so that he gives us abundant life, eternal life. He paid the debt for us, but but part of the communion experience is for us is to reflect and to see if there's any sin in our lives. If there's any times that we have not listened to God well. And to let God convict us. And to let God, well, allow us to confess our sin. And I'm wondering, even right now, if maybe some of us will need to confess how we have talked about someone in authority in our lives. It could be a mom. I get it. It could be a boss. It could be a building inspector. Man, it could be a lot of things. It might even be how you've talked about a president to other people. I think the tricky part is culture is confusing. I I do. So my hope is this, is that I love God with all of my heart and he's going to give me the perspective and the sensitivity that I need to love others well. Now one part that that we didn't go over a whole lot in this text and some of you might be really surprised because we've talked a whole long time, like how could you miss something, Rick? But in verses 15 and 16, as I wrap this up, This is what Peter writes. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slave. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Use your freedom to do good. It is God's will for your honorable lives to silence the critics. Some of you struggle with God's will. I do not know what God's will is. Hey, uh, right here. It's not in a different language. It's real clear. 
God's will says your lives can silence critics. I'd love for you, you can turn your Bibles or look up on the screen in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is preaching his longest sermon. And he's trying to help people understand what this new kingdom ethic looks like. And this is what he says. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where everyone gives light. I'm sorry, where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. I have to believe that 200 lights right here are going to make a huge difference in our world. Let's pray. Father, I think it's hard to not be in control at times. It's easy to justify when people mistreat us. Lord, sometimes we even wonder if you understand the picture. And why aren't you quicker in answering our prayers and maybe you're not fast enough to be able to fix unjust and unjust situations. God, would we fear you, trust you. When you say something, just do it. Would we love each other with unbelievable passion? And Father, would we respect everybody, everybody who's over us, whether we like it or not, could we grow in this area, could we trust you differently, in Jesus' name, amen.